Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. When I started out last Thursday's episode, I wasn't necessarily planning on this to be a trilogy about false declines, but I'm so grateful that the retailers that were on Tuesday's episode were able to share a bit of their time and a little bit of their perspectives and experience on just balancing that tightrope of trying to ensure that you are not canceling good orders at the expense of your company that you know you are continually trying to get as accurate as possible to be surgical in identifying fraud while still passing as many transactions as possible it's become very clear to me over the last few months but especially when i saw those results from the survey that i think as an industry we've been so focused on stopping fraud that we don't always think about some of the repercussions and that maybe all the transactions that you're passing aren't truly fraud. I think I told this story before, but it was so many episodes ago. I wouldn't expect any of you to, well, I wouldn't expect all of you to have listened to it or remember it. But when I managed my own team, and this was a very long time ago, I feel like it was like when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but it was just in 2008. But (laughs) in technology wise and in fraud feels like a lifetime ago, because there was really only one fraud system around, I worked with our engineers to build our own because this particular company was a handbag and accessories rental company. So, you know, someone could get a $15,000 Louis Vuitton handbag for, you know, $400 or $500 a week. And we're hoping that they're good, not only that they're who they say they are and that they're using their own credit card, but also that they're going to send it back. And so because there was only one fraud system around at the time, I think the second, there were two others that came up while I was there, but still they were really based on single transactions, right? Not rentals. The company I worked for was very ahead of its time. I think it was really the precursor to Rent the Runway and there was, you know, nothing set up for it. So we created our own system and I had three manual reviewers and myself and At the time, because of our volume and because of the system, we didn't have auto decline and auto accept, but there were definitely some that we would accept very, very quickly and some that looked like obvious fraud, but it's always that gray area, right? That middle area where, especially if you're manual reviewing it, you're basing it on your gut instinct. If your system is automatically doing it, it, systems can't always see context. So some can get very, very close. Others are way too jet and they aren't looking at enough data points to know really who that person is. And so after about a year and a half, I had reduced chargebacks by 97%. And I think we had a cancellation rate of, it was under 10%. I want to say it was like around seven or 8%, but the economy was going down. And I mean, obviously extra spending wasn't exactly the thing. So the company was struggling a bit. And I remember being brought into, or being called into a meeting with the CEO and the actually CTO, chief technology officer, marketing officer, and you know, the CEO because we were a small startup like that wasn't too abnormal even though there were there was one or two managers in between us depending on when it was and they really wanted to know how you know are you sure that you're canceling everything that's right we need these orders we how can we have faith in it 
And I just was very, I was very adamant that of course they're right. You know, I trust my team. I train them. I created this system. Our chargebacks are low. That's what you pay me for, right? You pay me to ensure that the chargebacks are low. And granted, that was a long time ago. That was before, you know, us as an industry went, hmm, maybe we need to look at this other part. But I kind of lost out on that battle. But we came to a compromise that I felt okay with. And that was that the CTO was going to have his team. So the CEO was going to have his team create an accept and watch button within the system. So basically, as I told my team, that was a CYA button. Whenever they came across an order that was just kind of on the gray area and they thought it was fraud, but they couldn't confirm a fraud, it was more suspected fraud, to click the accept and watch button. And I agreed with the leadership that I would then, within 30 and 60 days, go back to those orders and see if they turned into chargebacks. And that was going to be my way of saying, see, I told you so. But to be honest, after the first two months when we would have gotten all the chargebacks in, and actually we did this test for six months total, I want to say it was like, it was very humbling, first of all. This is a long time ago, but I know it was significant. I really think that only 20% of those orders that my team would have canceled, but you know, it wasn't confirmed fraud. We didn't talk to a cardholder. We didn't talk to a bank. We didn't, you know, have it linked to other fraudulent orders, things like that. Only 20% came back as chargebacks and our chargeback rate still became low. And we were able to pass 80% more orders than we had before. Yeah, we passed 80% of what we would have canceled. And that was significant to the bottom line. It also just taught me a huge lesson that we cannot just get complacent and think that the systems that we rely on, the team that we rely on, are making the right decision all the time. Fraud is complex. Fraud is contextual. It changes. And while, you know, we've trained our brains to really know that we're the protectors of the company, we also need to be protecting the revenue and protecting the company in that way and ensuring that you're not turning customers away. And depending on the type of company you are, those false declines can have really big impacts. Like how Jenna at Snipes talked about it. When they're in the middle of hype selling and they have a drop of new sneakers or new streetwear, if someone gets canceled who's a good person and they try to call back and they're able to prove that they are who they say they are, they're not using a stolen card, that inventory might be gone. Same with event ticketing or, you know, some travel packages, anything that's limited supply, high demand. You've got to do that because I know, especially in sneakers as well as ticketing, it's such a competitive thing. And if your company declines orders for good customers, they're going to your competitor. And especially if they're in those communities, they're then writing about it in Reddit or other threads. I've seen it myself, especially in the sneaker world. So it's something to think about, right? You really need to think about what does it mean when you cancel a good order? And I just don't think that we think about that enough. So these three episodes are my crusade to change that. But I promised you all that I would talk about how different companies are measuring it in new ways. And I hope that even if these ways don't necessarily work for you, that you maybe can get inspired and think about how you can systemize it so it's not so manual, right? Maybe it is adding an accept and watch button. I mean, that was 15 years ago, so technology's changed. You never know, right? Like that's one option. And then be able to automatically be able to see, oh, did these turn into chargebacks? Because if they didn't, then they just looked risky, but they were legitimate people. 
So in last Thursday's episode, I talked a little bit about kind of the what the standard ways of measuring false positives have been up until recently. And because we called them out in the survey, right? You're going through manually to QA them, to look for consistencies, to kind of go back and reverse engineer them and say, were these really fraud? Were they not, etc. Doing a specific percentage on auto as well as manual review for each analyst. A couple of the retailers talked about that piece as well on Tuesday. Other companies I know just measure it by customer calls into customer service. They might have an escalation process for the customer to call and, and speak with the fraud team or, you know, a senior analyst, or maybe they might have a, a Google form with extra questions that they have customer service fill out and send to the fraud team. There's different things like that. The, the problem with looking at customer calls is that how many people like to call anyone on the phone anymore? I know for me, I just, I think I have a list somewhere, a post-it note of like the doctor I need to call, the eye doctor I need to get an appointment with, but then, you know, it's just all the calls I need to make. So it's going to represent a small percentage and it's really hard to know what that percentage is. So I know that over the years, some companies have looked up that, I, I don't know, I'm sure there's research around it somewhere as far as for every one customer call about a problem, doesn't have to be fraud specific, but just in e-commerce or chat is also included in this, so customer contacts what's that multiplier, right? So is it, you know, three? Is it five? Is it six? I don't know. That's one way you can do it, but that's super accurate. But like I said last week, it doesn't, it's never going to be perfect, but you need to have something that's consistent that you're measuring so that you can tell the accuracy. I mean, it, it's good to try to be as accurate as possible in measuring your false positives because your false positives are simply measuring your accuracy of fraud. But at the same time, I just don't think we should be hung up on it. So I'm going to share some of the ways that some of the merchants that I know who are innovative have shared with me as far as how they're doing it. And sometimes some of these they needed to work with their fraud provider. In other cases, they were able to do it internally. It's really going to depend on your your resources and situation, etc. But I thought I'd just list them out, share them with you and let you kind of think about them. And hopefully they can inspire you to think of ways that you can do this in your organization. So I actually pulled up that page and realized there was one other little thing I was going to talk about right before that. I'm sorry, I'm really not trying to draw this out. But I just wanted to say that false positives, it's a metric that more than likely your fraud provider, your core fraud provider probably doesn't have a report for, right? Like to them, they'd like to think that their accuracy is 100%. And to be fair, there's one or two that are really, really close to that, actually. I've seen some of the metrics of, you know, at least one company recently, and you guys can probably put two and two together, that has approval rates in the high 90s for most of their customers, depending on the risk, and their chargebacks are under the threshold. But some of the providers that have, again, not invested in innovation, not invested in trying to get better, uh, or are add-ons to other services that you have, whether it's payment processing or a gateway or something like that, that's not their core competency. This is something you're going to need to create yourself. You're going to have to figure out yourself. It's not a report that most fraud providers will just have for you off the shelf. There might be ways, like I'm going to talk about in a minute, that you might be able to ask them to help you with this. But I don't know of any that provide false positives because really that's that's your job and that's your way of holding them accountable as well. They're, it's not their job to hold themselves accountable. I mean, some do, but it's your job as the client. And there's two main reasons why your third-party fraud providers, you know, won't measure them for you, right? So one is they don't have all the information needed. They don't know how many customers called back and provided more information. They aren't having someone more than likely, they aren't having someone QA with extra information internally to look at how those decisions were made. And then, like I said, this is also what 
kind of measures their job performance. So if they aren't doing a good job, they don't want to tell you that. And even if you have manual review and, and track those false declines separately, chances are, I mean, it's your fraud provider, your risk stack that deemed those specific orders risky enough to be reviewed in the first place. So like I said, this is your way of holding them accountable. And those of you working for fraud providers, I'm not trying to dog on you. However, I've been very vocal because I'm getting really tired of some of the stories I'm hearing. Those of you who are not investing in innovation and R&D to keep up with fraud and keep up with good customer activity as well. This is on you. This is your chance to do that. And I would say that if your customers are contacting you and asking for your help to measure this, this is your chance to show them why, why they chose you and why they need to stay with you. And if you aren't able to do that, then that's, you know, a decision that you need to make if you're going to be able to invest in making those changes that will help reduce that gap between orders canceled and chargebacks. Because if you're canceling 5, 10, 15% of their orders, that's probably not how much fraud they have. So, you know, how can you help them to have better performance? That That's on you. That's my challenge to you. I think all of us in this industry should want to up-level our game. I mean, if you've ever had an order canceled and you didn't know why, you know that how frustrating that is. So you don't want your customers' customers to be impacted that way too. Okay, now to the part that everyone's kind of looking forward to, and I am too. I think this is fun. It's kind of similar to when I shared a few case studies on account takeovers last summer and was able to say, hey, some companies are looking at things this way and that way. I think it's really helpful and I try to, I'm grateful that I remember a lot of them, but I try to track them too so that when we're talking about specific topics, I can pull them out. And like I said, I think I've removed everything that would ever identify this mer these merchants, particularly. They'll know who they are, but that's what's most important, right? Like with Tuesday's episode, it's not as important to know who it is as it is what they're saying, what they're sharing and what they're talking about. Granted, I'm sure if you're in sales, you would love to know. But other than that, those of us listening to it for educational purposes, the name is nice and I really, really love to give people credit and get to promote them and say, hey, this person at this company does a great job. I can't always do that. So this is my way of kind of being the conduit to information and sharing it out. So I wasn't going to start with the first one. Okay. As technology gets more sophisticated and we think more about how to solve problems using technology, some merchants have developed their own ways to measure false declines. The first way is kind of a mix of tech and manual. So there's one merchant right now that I know is doing a test and instead of giving their provider a way to auto decline any orders, they're having them send all a list of all the orders that the fraud provider is recommending to auto decline to their customer service to call the phone number that was provided and see if they pick up or not, see if it's dead or not. I mean, we know that some fraudsters, it's actually becoming quite common that they'll put the cardholder's phone number in there because they know that it's being verified electronically, but they don't know that they never would think that people would call it, right? So this particular merchant has the bandwidth for it. They have a large customer service team. Their volume is high, but not, not too high. And their average order is around $1,000. And they realized that their provider was canceling a pretty high percentage of orders and they just wanted to verify that those were accurate. You know, if they're really having eight, nine, 12% of fraud, then they can back it up to their leadership. So they did this test and they said, instead of auto declining it, send us all the orders in the queue and our customer service is going to call the phone numbers. And it's been interesting. A lot of times they're talking to cardholders saying, I didn't make that purchase. I guess my card's stolen, but thanks so much for letting me know. Other times, you know, the card, the phone number is disconnected or it's fake, but that's a good way for them. You know, other times they call the cardholder and the cardholder's like, absolutely, I made that purchase. And it's 
my card and what extra information from me do you need so that you can pass that order. Like I said, this requires a little bit more manual on your side and customer service resources, but it's an option, right? It's something that I know at least one company is doing and I haven't heard the final results yet, but I know that within even a few days they were, they felt like it was worth it because they had already been able to pass a lot more orders than they had before with a lot more certain. So that's, you know, one way of doing it. And as far as measuring the false positives, then you would obviously track the ones that you approve. And then that's your false positive rate. But in a way, you're also learning what are the orders that we canceled? Why did they, why were they recommended to be canceled? Can our fraud tool adjust and ingest that information and be able to make it so that customers that have similar orders in the future don't have to go through this, don't need to get a phone call in this case. I recently spoke to another merchant that was seeing a spike in customer calls saying, hey, why was my order canceled? My bank said that it wasn't canceled on their end. So clearly declines due to suspected fraud, but they didn't really have the bandwidth to investigate all of those. They certainly tried and put in a quick fix, but they wanted a long-term fix to understand it. So they spoke with their fraud provider and asked that they change things up. So for every 100 orders that the fraud provider was going to auto decline, this merchant asked that they pass five of them. So pass 5% of the orders randomly that you were going to decline. And then, you know, we'll obviously create a feedback loop and check for chargebacks within 30 to 60 days. Yes, the chargeback timeline is 120 days, but most of the time fraud chargebacks are received within 60 days. Usually it's actually less than 45 because cardholders are going to notice the fraudulent charges and want to call their bank right away to get the money back. It's generally with first party fraud that we see those timelines a little bit longer. So for this merchant, they learned that out of all the orders that their provider was canceling, they looked at this 5% that were passing to see how many turn into chargebacks. And the provider was pretty certain that they all would, or a very high percentage would. And the merchant wasn't sure what they'd get back. But only 10% of those transactions that uh, were passed, that would have been declined, turned into chargebacks. So that means that 90% of the orders that their fraud provider was canceling because they thought they were fraud weren't. They didn't turn into chargebacks. Now it could be that some of them are made on prepaid cards that don't allow chargeback, but that's still, I mean, I know some merchants have been identifiers and when they know that, even if they see it's risky, they'll pass it. Others won't because they don't want their model to get confused. So that is also an internal decision based on how your fraud provider works. You know, is it real-time machine learning, etc. But this merchant was pretty shocked that 90% of them weren't fraud. They didn't turn into chargebacks. Then they did a deep dive on that 90% on those orders that were passed during this test and looked for commonalities. And they were able to look at what are some things we can work with our provider to make sure that these types of orders get passed again. This merchant also realized that the way that the fraud provider was looking at orders, how they do it is so important because fraudsters love some of the ways that, you know, solutions do it. If they're rules-based, if it's exception-based reporting, if there are thresholds that they need to find, they will do continual tests to find those thresholds. Are you sharing machine learning models with companies that have very opposite business models than you? And they think some things are risky that aren't because everyone's kind of sharing the same model, but customizing it with their own rule sets. So looking at the how is really important. Something that we learned that we asked about in the survey that you will hear the results to later. Next option we actually asked about on in the survey. It's part of a bigger question where we ask kind of 
what the vendor relationship is for chargeback liability. So, you know, your primary solution, are they liable for fraud and abuse? Are you liable for fraud and abuse, et cetera? But I promise this is getting, this has a relationship to false positives because they were selecting all that applied. So they'd probably select one thing for primary core and then go from there. But 33% of the respondents, and remember it's over 500 people with fraud, owning fraud in e-commerce, primarily for enterprise or well-known brands, 33% of them said that they outsource orders that their primary fraud solution suggests declining to a different fraud vendor. And that fraud vendor guarantees their decision and takes liability for it. It's kind of referred to as trash to treasure. So you have one primary fraud provider and anything that they recommend to cancel goes to a secondary fraud provider. And that first fraud provider may or may not provide chargeback liability, but oftentimes that second one does. These were, in theory, these were orders that were going to be declined anyway. Why not see if another set of eyes, another type of solution can have a second look? And there's, there are at least two companies I know that are very good at this. And you might say, well, if they're really good at it and they're able to pass the, basically the junk, the things that the primary fraud provider said were too risky, why doesn't the merchant just switch to that secondary fraud provider? And the truth is that may not be an option for various reasons, right? Engineering resources or contractual obligations or just so many different things. And so it was surprising to me that 33% of respondents are doing this already. But when you're doing this, you're also measuring your false positives, right? Because you look at what the secondary fraud provider passes and that percentage is essentially the false declines from your first provider. So if your secondary provider is canceling or is approving 87% of 87% of the orders that your first provider said to cancel, then you take 87% of the percentage that they canceled and that's your false decline rate for them. And that can, but in a way, if you're doing this already, this can also justify why you have this set up, right? If you can't change your primary fraud provider for whatever reason, this is something you can advocate to leadership and say, hey, we recognize this. We saw a gap, we saw an opportunity and we're recovering all of these. And if any of them really are fraud that the secondary provider cancels, we're not liable. It's really a win-win. And oftentimes those relationships really provide a lot of upside. I mean, some of them don't even require engineering resources to set up, right? Sometimes you can just send them over the orders. There's always the work you can do your research or ask your peers or, you know, a trusted third party that, you know, isn't biased that can tell you who to talk to for that. And yeah, there's a little bit of a fee, but at the same time, it's almost like free money, right? Because this is the stuff that these are the orders that previously, before you started working with this secondary provider, were just going to get canceled. And depending how, how your setup is with your first provider, you may be able to adjust your rules based on what the secondary provider is passing. But really at the end of the day, it's just a way to double check. Right, have another set of eyes, another way of looking at things. No two fraud solutions are the same. It can be good to get a second opinion and measure your false positives that way. Now, does that mean that every single order that the secondary provider canceled is legitimate and would have turned into a chargeback? Maybe not. Like I said, some of them are approving like high 80s, mid 90s on the things that the first provider would cancel. So it's such a small amount. You certainly could try to measure that, but I don't know if it matters too much. I guess it depends on how much you know, how much a basis point is for you at your company. Like I said in the last solo episode, I think it's really important for merchants to know how much a basis point is worth to you, how much one hundredth of a percent is worth to you or is worth to your company, right? And then whenever you're looking at approval rates or declines, you can look at that and know, wow, if we just approved 1% more transactions, that could be $30 million. That could be $5 million a year. 
And wouldn't that be fun to tell leadership? Hey, guess what? We increased revenue by X million dollars a year by improving our accuracy. And then that's when you ask for your raise. (laughs) I don't know how many of you laughed at that, but... I know that when I worked for a very large enterprise company and I implemented the friendly for chargeback process and implemented a collections process on the back end and just this full end-to-end process and I saw how much money I was saving them, I was like, can we change my employment contract instead of salary? Can I just get like 1% of how much I saved you in perpetuity? Man, if I did that, who knows? But obviously they said no. I'm sure you've all had those same thoughts. But it is good job security. And it is something to put on your resume and to advocate for. And it can also really help with the perception of the fraud team for the rest of the company. That's important and it matters. Another way that you can measure your false positives on your current provider is by doing a POC with another provider. Like I said, they all look at different things. And if you work with a provider who, you know, is continually innovating and who who your peers have all had a really good experience with and all of that, you might see a pretty big improvement. And while live POCs are the best way, I know that they aren't always the way. When I had Neil McCurrig on the podcast, I think about a month ago or so, he shared a few ways that you can look at the performance and he provided some ways that you can, you know, assess the performance of a potential provider without doing a live POC. And I highly suggest going back and listening to that episode if you didn't already. He currently works for eShop World, but also was at Subhub before and just a very smart guy and had some good ideas. I also know that you can ask a future provider what their aggregated approval rates are for companies like yours. If they don't want to share those, then that might be an answer in itself. But I know a few of the really good ones who will. They're open books with that. They'll say, hey, for companies your size in your vertical, our approval rates are around 95%. You might take a couple weeks, but here's that. So what, you know, we can compare it. You can at least compare it to your current approval rates and kind of see wow, there's a lot of room there, or if there isn't. Another thing is you can look at the upcoming Fredo's You Benchmarking Survey because we're going to provide auth rates, or approval rates, sorry, not auth rates. Auth rates are from the bank. Ranges of approval rates for merchants of all different sizes. And I think we had like eight or nine different categories of sizes. And then we tried to get fairly granular on the approval rates. So you can be able to look and see how do I compare to my peers, right? Am I over or am I under? If you're over, that still doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement, but that can really help as well. And just knowing if there's an opportunity, right? Like those won't give you exact false positive rates by any chance, by any means, but it will tell you that's probably worth looking at, right? There's probably, there's a pretty big margin between our approval rates right now and what our peers are or the companies on the next step above that are a little bit higher. Cause obviously I'm sure that's where your companies are hoping to go revenue wise. What are their approval rates? You're kind of looking at all those things and that can just give you a general idea of, hmm, maybe there's some opportunity here. And that's really what I'm getting at, right? Because for every order, like I said last Thursday, that you cancel that on a good customer, you're losing their entire lifetime value. You're not just losing the transaction amount. You're also throwing away the customer acquisition costs. You are, and you're giving that essentially to your competitor. And who knows if they're going to put out a tweet or Reddit or whatever and say, don't shop with them because they they just cancel orders. Most customers don't understand why their orders are canceled. So some might be really mad. I know that that's not something that you can really quantify, but it does add up to brand reputation. And then there's another systematic way that I know that one merchant worked with their fraud provider to do a couple of years ago. Maybe it was just like one year ago. <laughs> I can't remember time is, I don't know, on a spectrum somewhere. But 
they kind of created an auto recovery method. So they were having so many customers call into their customer service. And it was, you probably know the cost, you know, per customer call or customer contact via chat or email for your company, but it adds up. So this one merchant worked with their provider to provide an automatic recovery way for customers who were declined. And if they felt like they shouldn't have been, they could provide more information or they could select a different payment method that didn't allow chargebacks. And the merchant saw quite a bit of cost savings from their call center as well as recovered transactions that way. I don't remember all of the details, but I know that they that really helped them a lot. It also gave them some insight into just how many orders their fraud provider was auto-canceling that probably weren't fraud. So it kind of backfired a little bit on the vendor, but hopefully, hopefully your solution provider is happy to help you to identify false positives. And when you do, hopefully they are willing to, willing and ready to implement that feedback and improve it. Because like I said the other day too, no one gets paid on canceled orders. Your company doesn't get paid depending on the contract. Fraud providers don't get paid. So we should want less of them. Yes, we need to cancel fraud ones, but guys, we are overshooting it big time. And it's just so much lost opportunity. I know how important it is to feel valued by your organization. And one way to do that is to show your organization that you're not sales prevention. You are revenue retention and you are continually trying to improve. You're not just trying to stay underneath one number and above another number. You're constantly trying to learn, just like the merchants that we're talking on Tuesday, right? They're constantly trying to improve. They're trying to reduce those chargebacks and increase the approval. How can we do that in the margins? Because the margins is where all the money is. And then as I mentioned a little bit throughout this episode, and P pointed it out on Tuesday's episode, trying to remember everyone's letter that I gave them, measuring your false positive rate is only the first step. It's a really important step and it might take a while, but you shouldn't just be measuring your false positive rate and go along your merry way. You should be analyzing the transactions or the accounts that make up the false decline and insult rate. Who declined them? Was it systematic? Was it, you know, manual, etc.? Why were they declined? Are there other transactions or accounts that were declined for the same reasons? Assess the systems and your manual review processes to try to adapt positive attributes or remove the negative attributes or the rules to help those orders in the future that look just like them be passed. Or if you're using real-time machine learning, tagging the false declines in the transactions accordingly to train the models is really important providing that feedback loop into your process, into your system, that's really actually how you're going to improve your approval rate and how you're going to keep reducing that false decline rate. And basically this analysis is just like, you know, what I always recommend doing for chargebacks, right? You should have root cause analytics to provide a picture in hindsight, you know, that the chargebacks is, is this true fraud, is this first party fraud, et cetera, and putting true fraud in the model and first party fraud dealing with in a different way, usually responding to the chargeback in the correct way to get recovery back. And if you lose that, and you can prove it's first party, you can send it to collections. I have even had to civilly sue a few people, but that was at the first company, the handbag company. And there were a couple who would not give us our stuff back, even though I would call and beg for it. Hey, you have $90,000 worth of merchandise. You stopped paying on it three months ago. All your credit cards are maxed out. Please just send me my stuff back and I will cancel all of the late rental fees you have. No, but my friends have seen me with these. Oh my goodness. And you know, and I don't want to explain to them why I don't have them anymore. In that job, especially at that time, I sure learned a lot about American consumerism because it, it was a domestic and American company just within the US. So just saying the chargeback system, you can still go outside of it. On this side with false declines, when you're analyzing it, you're looking at why did it trigger? Why did the system or why did this analyst think it was fraud? And what can we do to make sure that our system, hopefully the system, so we don't even get to an analyst, but what can we do to the system so that this order doesn't look risky anymore? Because it's not. 
And then, you know, if an analyst canceled it, training them, like we talked about on Tuesday's episode with the retailer and putting a little more emphasis on this than the chargebacks. Obviously, if you are in the chargeback monitoring program, I know that passing more orders is probably not your first priority, but there's a lot of other ways to reduce fraud chargebacks and actually root cause analytics is the best way by far. It was really the core offering in my consultancy for the first several years. When you learn how you're losing money and what those patterns are, and you go back and reverse engineer it and fix those up front, whether it's with more messaging or clear description, or I mean, so many different things, you know, a clear descriptor on the bank statement or so many different things that it could be, then you reduce your chargeback rate. And in this case, it's kind of the opposite, right? You look at the orders that, you know, your system or that your analyst felt these are too risky. We need to cancel these and figure out how do we not cancel these in the first place? Because because of the way that we measure our false declines in one way or another, then we know that these were canceled in the wrong way or these were canceled incorrectly. How do we adjust that upstream? And, you know, as P pointed out as well on the episode, there are, you know, depending on the size of your company, if you have a very large company and you have data scientists on your team, definitely work with them to try to measure these as well. They may have more sophisticated ways. If you have your own models, your own systems internally, that's also caveat to all of this. But for the most part, most of you rely on a third party provider. And I think if I can say any message in 2023, I feel like the common thread is not all fraud providers are created equal. And some of them are costing you millions of dollars. And it's up to you to work with them to try to see if they can improve that and improve that accuracy. And if they can't, then talk to other providers. Talk to providers that really focus on accuracy and keep wanting to get better and keep wanting to improve. That's going to be the game changer for your company, for your fraud team, for you. It's it's where we need to be, right? Because especially if we care about the customer experience, then we need to care about false declines because that's the ultimate slap in the face to your customer during their experience. Well, and then finally, I was just going to say, if as you're looking at your false decline data, and if there wasn't enough data or data points in your for your system or your analyst to identify the good transactions up front, then you may need to add an additional layer. You may need to work with your fraud provider to say, hey, I need you to help us identify these transactions better. What additional data can we add to this? Or maybe you look at adding a trash to treasure model at the end with a secondary fraud provider with a chargeback guarantee. Or maybe you just look for a new provider altogether. Or you look at other systems that, you know, allow you to kind of orchestrate different solutions during the customer journey. Like there's so many different options. I think I've said this enough times, but it can always get better. You can always improve. And we just should never trust that these systems that are guessing on context and, you know, the data that they have, they're not always going to be accurate, especially as consumer behavior changes and looks a little more like the risky behavior five years ago and as fraud behavior keeps changing as well. And a lower approval rate does not mean a lower chargeback rate. I actually, honestly, I think it usually does mean a higher chargeback rate from what I have seen. So improving our accuracy, always wanting to get better. That should be our goal. And that's where I'm going to leave it today. I, as always, thank you all so much for listening to Fraudology. And I will look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you.
you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.